Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Success in Finance. Joining me today is Mark Sinjakli and Noreen Khan. Um, so they're going to talk us through their respective careers. So Mark started out in audit um, before going on to spend another 10, uh, 15 years in business restructuring. Noreen went down the communications route and that's what led her into setting up My Baker. Um, so we're going to hear a lot about the um, the story and the journey of my baker starting with the eureka moment itself um, going about fundraising uh, the benefits of seis relief and uh, mark's plans for the business now that he's um, bought it from noreen um, i hope you enjoyed the episode and don't forget to subscribe share and comment you can also check out the success in finance blog and confirm future guests at successinfinance.co.uk thanks Hi, Mark. Hi, Noreen. Thanks for joining me on Success in Finance today. How are you both? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Danny. Delighted to uh, have the opportunity to talk to you and to your listeners. Hi, Danny. (laughs) Good. Glad you're both well. Um, So, look, do you want to start with a quick summary of your respective careers, just a a quick elevator pitch, and then we can go into a bit more depth? Um, Mark, do you want to kick us off and then we'll go through Noreen? Yeah, happy to, Danny. So I uh, trained as a chartered accountant um, with BDO Story Haywood and did three years in audit and um, the mutual connection of ours, Andy Viner, who I think was on your show yeah. a couple of weeks back now. And Andy Andy was one of my bosses as I came through in audit. Um, I w- it was great to get the finance background. Like many people, I didn't really relish audit as a career. So then I switched to the world of corporate restructuring and I had a 14-year career in corporate restructuring. So variously turning around, struggling businesses, helping them improve, uh, focus on profitability before focusing again on growth, Um, or in the less fortunate cases, using something like an insolvency process to hopefully still save the business, but you know, with everything that goes with that, some redundancies, creditors not getting a full return and so on. And um, yeah, I did that for 14 years, as I said, and then reached a stage where I felt like I wanted to do something radically different. And uh, as we'll talk about in more detail in the future, that led me to buying my baker with, with my wife. So we can, we can jump onto that, but I'll hand over to you, back to you. Cool, thanks, Mark. Um, Noreen, do you want to give us a quick summary yourself? Sure, so, um, so I graduated back in 2010 and I joined Deutsche Bank as a grad. Um, and sort of my main responsibility there was sitting within the corporate communications team. So advising um, infrastructure groups within the bank on sort of communication plans, whether it be sort of people announcements, launching a new product, um, delivering sort of quarterly results for the whole bank. Um, so I spent four years there, really enjoyed my time there. And it sort of really gave me a good foundation as to, um, as to work life, to be completely honest. And, and that's when I sort of stumbled on um, the idea of my baker, which I'm sure we'll go into, and and um, left my left my career in the bank to um, embark on my journey as an entrepreneur. Awesome. Um, well, look, yeah, like I said, we can now get into a bit more detail. So I think the best plan of attack is to start with Mark, go through what he did, then Noreen will talk a bit more uh, about your career, and then we'll get onto my baker where obviously you can both have, have a good input there. Um, so Mark, as you say, you started off at, uh, in practice with BDO um, before moving across to EY, I believe. Um, how did you find your time in audit and what sort of inspired you to move into the restructuring sides? 
Um, well, it's been it's been a sort of a strange journey for me because I'm I'm kind of a reluctant accountant. I swore that I was only going into accounting to learn about business rather than to learn about accounting. Um, and then obviously in audit, you have to know about the actual accounting and you know double entry bookkeeping and how all that works. And so so, so I kind of. I did it with an eye to learning about businesses. And to be fair, I learned loads about businesses. I also learned loads about the financial reporting side. I knew that wasn't the career for me. And I mean, I just, I found it really, I, I, as an auditor, you, I think you've got that right around yourself. But you, you, I felt somewhat yeah. removed, removed from the business, really. It's kind of, mm. you're, you know, you're, you're helping the directors produce a report uh on something that uh, uh and auditing that report you know something that's already historic and gone and happened a year ago so actually as a as as a um learning ground for someone who didn't have a business background and i didn't before i trained in audit it was excellent so i learned loads but I, as i got to year two year three i started to feel like i was at the end of um how i wanted to learn and um or i'd learned all i wanted to learn about financial reporting at that point yeah okay yeah. um yeah, so then why why restructuring then? And did, did you move into EY into restructuring or did you do a quick stint at BDO and then move across? No, it's a, it's a good question. So um, BDO at the time, actually, what, what they did was really excellent um, and I'm sure they still do it, which was when people were coming up to the end of their three-year audit contract, they did a sort of like what, what, what routes are open to you next right. series of meetings and talks. And, um, and there was a... Um, a really good talk uh, on restructuring um, and um, from a guy called Danny Dartnell and you know he just sort of was talking about what happens in a typical restructuring case in those days a typical restructuring case was the business went into administration and the administrator and their team went in and ran the business um, and I kind of went a bit against the grain just on instinct because it, this was 2005 so the market was buoyant. Everyone was going into mergers and acquisitions. All of my friends ended up in mergers and acquisitions and they were all about boom and growth and stuff. And this just, the idea of going in and running every aspect of a business, which is what, what you do in a, in a trading administration, just really appealed to me. And mm -hmm. others were put off by kind of, oh, you know, you're going you're gonna to have to make some really tough decisions. You're going to have to sort of, you know, there will be redundancies. There'll be difficult conversations with unsecured creditors and so on. And um, I just thought it sounded brilliant. So it really just captured my imagination. Obviously not, not, not specifically those darker sides of it, but just the fact that it was so entrepreneurial that you would work alongside um, MDs, CEOs and FDs. You would plan, you know, the next eight weeks production. In, in parallel, you would do a sales process of the business. Um, it just sounded fantastic. And that was, that was kind of borne out. And yeah, I moved, to answer your question, I moved directly from... BDO to EY, from London to Manchester, and from audit to restructuring. That was all in one fell swoop. Um, but EY again were, were wonderfully supportive. Um, just got loads of work, um, lots of lots of sort of a lot of manufacturing concerns. Sort of with my time with EY, two thousand five to two thousand eight, uh, looking for you know that a lot of the manufacturing was moving across to the Far East and to Eastern Europe and so on. So UK's manufacturing arm was under a lot of pressure. So a lot of those businesses found themselves in difficulties and it was about coming up with creative solutions for them where we could. Some businesses we saved, some sadly had to close. Um, but it was it was really interesting. It's really good. Yeah, no, it sounds it. And 
Um, just going back to what you said about all your mates were going into merging acquisitions. Um, obviously, M&A is sort of notorious for its long hours. In in the route that you went down, are long hours a thing or is it more because you're sort of running the business, you dictate how, how much you put in? Yeah, it's um, long hours were the norm. And you know, yeah. you, you know, you never truly felt on top of anything. It's just yeah. it's that it's that sensation. A bit like a bit like running my baker actually. It's that <laughs> sensation of uh, always being that one step behind, you know, because you've got to get your arm around the business. You've got um, an expectant set of creditors, often a bank, um, who are sort of wanting wanting regular updates when you've only been in there a few days. Um, you know, you've got people knocking on your door. You're in, you're responsible as the administrator and their staff. You're responsible for everything. You know, because yeah. the, the directors lose their executive powers. So everything from kind of, you know, a, 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 a cleaner knocks on the door and says, oh, I'm kind of an independent cleaner. Are you still going to keep my services? To which the answer is always yes, by the way. Like, no, matter, <laughs> no matter how short of money the company is, don't turn the cleaning staff off. You know, that's the yeah. thing. Some of my colleagues learned that the hard way, you know, th through to kind of, you know, the CEO says, you know, one of the manufacturing lines is down and, and you know, we've got this product due to a customer in three days. So it's just everything. Yeah. So, it and, and, you know, in terms of, in terms of sort of a, a breeding ground for an entrepreneur, I can't think of a better one than restructuring as it as it was then. Um, yeah. Now, restructuring isn't like that now, for the most part. It still it still goes on. You still have some training administration, but I think for the greater good of those companies, um, there is less of put them into administration and getting a team to trade them, and much more of keep them out of administration, avoid that reputational damage, and can we do something smart with compromising the creditors? be it the bank debt or landlords or unsecured creditors coming up with some kind of a compromise via a legal framework, which means you don't have to go into administration. So via a scheme of arrangements or a CVA. Um, now, as I say, that is so much better for the companies and so much better for the greater good. What it meant for me as an individual is I gradually found restructuring to be less fun, you know, and, and I just had to own that. It went from a very entrepreneurial skill set where I hone my skills, which I'm now applying in my baker, to a very technical skill set, you know, lots of close work with lawyers, um, lots of sort of, you know, thinking about how you get the requisite votes from all the creditor constituencies to pass it. And yeah, and very removed from the day-to-day -day running a business. So uh, as I say, on a, on a macro level, that's a brilliant thing to have happened and that's much better. And it's better that companies don't have people coming in and running them, you know, a layer of accountants on top. It's better that that happens but it, it's also the reason i kind of fell out of love with restructuring in the end and the reason no, i'm back on an entrepreneurial path now no that's fair enough um and just to uh, focus in on those elements that that did sort of feed your entrepreneurial side what what was it about the restructuring back then um was it i don't know was it the fact that you're just having to drive the business forward as the administrator um or, or was it was it other elements as well? Well, I, I think in a strange way, you, you, you're in a uniquely powerful position as an administrator mm. and administrator's team in that, you know, the, the, the board of directors have tried. They have been unable to secure the funding to take the business forward. The business can only continue to trade with the consent of its creditors um, and the creditors have put you in 
and you're responsible for you're not accountable to the shareholders anymore because the shareholders are and are out of the money they're never going to get a return because the credit is it's as much returns to the creditors as possible um and so you're uniquely empowered to make decisions of course you know if you've got good management there and often you have you keep them on you need their input they know the business you know you're working with people who've run the same business for 30 years and are devastated to see it go into a process um but you soon you soon learn sort of the important decisions that are to be made you know you've only got a limited pot of money you don't spend on marketing it's it's very much kind of you know how can we stop this from losing more money because that's your absolute solemn duty as an administrator is you know i can't make it worse for the creditors than if i hadn't been here so you know you, you you very quickly cut costs look at what's profitable and trade on a limited basis and at the same time you run a sales process. So there is an M&A element to it, but it's distressed M&A with obviously different, different uh, sort of ramifications. And um, yeah, and ultimately that, that skill set helped me buy the business from Nori because I knew how to run a, you know, buy a business and, it, and, it, and it's helping me to run it now. So, uh, yeah. so it's Great. really in good stead. Yeah. No, that, that's interesting. So thanks for that. Um, so then at EY, well, when when you were coming up to the end of your time at EY, you then spent some time at RBS. Was that a secondment out of EY, or or was it something separate? Um, it, it it was a secondment out of the firm I moved to, Zolfo Cooper. So I moved to right. Zolfo Cooper um, in two thousand late two thousand and eight. I had a couple of years in Manchester. Got tempted back to the city, back to London. Yeah. And um, as part of that, I cut, so I was kind of. Um, with the guy I was reporting into, Simon Appel, I sort of said, well, is this going to work for me moving to London because it's a big market and I don't know anyone? And he sort of said, I can see that. And one way to get to know the market really quickly would be if you had your secondment to, uh, to RBS. Um, right. And, and so did that sort of feed what you were looking for it to feed that time there? Because you were there for a year and a half, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, it was very, it was, it was, it was very interesting times. It was sort of the... I was in the kind of um, global restructuring group, which you know is a, is a um, a part of the bank, which has attracted a lot of controversy um, over the years. You know, there are all sorts of allegations around around um, kind of um, around that, which obviously I won't <laughs> go into for any uh, <laughs> in any depth. But um, you know, it, it was re- it was really you know it was it was a group of people um, really trying to do the best by their uh, by their customers. Uh, but in very difficult circumstances, you know, both on a macroeconomic level and those specific businesses. Um, so it was it was very interesting to see it from the bank side because I'd always seen it sort of more from going out to companies. And so now I got to see it kind of, you know, someone else was doing that role and they were reporting into me. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then going on to Zolfo Cooper, your time there in London, and then I think you were then acquired to become Alex Partners. Is that right? Um, so you spent 10 years there making your way up to director. Um, what what were sort of the highlights over that time? What did you learn uh, that was different as you progressed? Or was it just the variety of projects that means you're constantly learning? Yeah, I think I think it's probably that last point hits the nail on the head, to be honest. It's kind of, it was always something different. I've done a lot of sort of SME and mid-corporate work in Manchester. I got to work on some truly global projects during my time at Alex Partners especially um, so we worked on uh, a company called Agricor which was um, Croatia's biggest company 10% of Croatia's GDP 
which was in financial difficulty. So that was a huge, you know, that was kind of how do you parcel that up and how do you even get your head around this? This had, you know, farms, um, animal and, and uh, vegetable farms, food production factories. It had supermarkets. It was completely vertically integrated. It was in other parts of the Balkans as well. Um, you, you felt still the, the ramifications and repercussions of the war there. So, you know, it was very kind of, you know, we, we, I spent a lot of my time in Bosnia there and it, there was a, a, a degree of mistrust still between the various communities. So, you know, you're suddenly dealing with huge complexity, um, you know, huge pressure, you know, meeting with kind of, um, you know, the most senior politicians in the land. We also did another one in the Ukraine which was um, uh, the National Bank of Ukraine. Um, and it was the sort of um, the, the state's ownership of a, of, a, um, of a bank there. The bank was taken into state hands, which again is all in the public domain, but I can't say obviously too much more about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, it, I mean, they, they, they were really fascinating. Um, but I think again, probably in terms of what, why I've ended up where I am is it, it's, it's not always attractive, particularly as you reach a certain age be a small cog in a big wheel mm. and you, you 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 lose a lot of self-definition you lose a lot of ability to sort of say this is where i want to take my career it's just kind of like and and, and understandably right because these are huge yeah. projects huge pressure and it's kind of you need to you need to fit in you need to do this bit um but yeah kind of combination of long hours and low autonomy really define those projects and so uh, that's probably why i sort of reached reached the end really with that stuff yeah, no, because I was going to ask um, what would sort of the size of the team working on a project like that be? Um, yeah, it could, it could easily be uh, 20 or 30 from Alex Partners, plus the same again in lawyers, plus the same again in local advisors, because you kind of, we're being brought in for our international expertise, but then don't know the local law. So you need, a, you have kind of financial advisors set of local parallel financial advisors, legal advisors, the same. So it all gets, you know, big and complex. Very quick. Yeah, you sounds know, it. And uh, on that point then, obviously like the lawyers are the legal advisors, the local advisors are the local advisors, but you're the top of your team responsible for making all of the actual decisions. Um, it's a really good question. It, that, that is very much context specific. So in a, in, a, in a UK administration, the administrators assume the powers of the directors. Um, in the Croatian case, they, they wrote a law for this. Um, wow. for this. It was kind of, we, our, our, our insolvency laws don't work if we apply them. Their insolvency laws are a bit like liquidation, like shutting stuff down. That wasn't an option here. The, you know, 10% of the Croatian economy depended on it. Yeah. So, they, so they wrote a law. But, but the ultimate authority under that law was, was basically sat in one individual who was appointed as the effective, effectively like the special manager or I forget the term that was used for, for that. So in that case, we were, we were technically advisors, but the reality is our, our team had a lot of power and influence because again, we were brought in to protect the interests of creditors. So, you know, we'd have, for example, to give you one example, it was a very decentralized businesses uh, with a set of businesses with lots of different people having the authority to authorize spends. And because we were kind of literally, the, the coffers are dry. We've only got this money, which had been funded to turn the business around. We put everything through us. So kind of every business, we're talking about nearly 200 legal entities, all of their payment requests had to go through a central team through us to get approved. 
in many cases to get rejected or renegotiated just just to kind of have that big so someone had that big picture of the finances how much money is going to be spent and so on yeah wow that sounds like a really interesting project to be involved in um yeah no it, it i'm sure we'll hear about in a bit more detail the skills you learn and how you're applying them now when we get on to my baker um no but thanks for going through your career mark um noreen should we turn to you now then sure i think mine's going to be sort of 10 percent of what mark talked through but um in terms of sort of how i fell into my role at deutsche bank um yeah as a grad it was very much um sort of going to careers fairs at universities um I, so i went to um lse i studied there and sort of in our second and third years we had a lot of the banks coming to our universities hosting career fairs um so it was sort of the only direction to really go in um because that's sort of what was sort of drilled into you've got to go and work for an investment bank it's it's the best place to be and sort of it's the best, best place to sort of um, gain, gain your skills and in sort of the early start of your career um and i wasn't sort of i, I wasn't mathsy i wasn't mathematically driven in that way and the sort of skills that I knew that I had was sort of um, a people person. Um, I loved writing. Um, so that's how sort of I fell into, um, into the role as a grad into the corporate communications team. And um, sort of the four years I spent there was great. Um, it was very much sort of learning within the first year. And then sort of when you're trusted to sort of write the communication pieces yourself um, from, from my manager, I was given sort of the autonomy to do that and have my own sort of internal stakeholders. Um, and that's really about it, to be completely honest. And that's when, because my career was very short-lived until sort of my baker came along um, yeah. when I embarked on that journey. So, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll go into detail in my baker, but I mean, I guess um, having had that marketing and communications route, um, I don't know, well, I'm sure we'll get into it exactly how you built my baker out, but I imagine it was a lot of social media and things like that. So was that background particularly useful in the early days of building the brand? So Deutsche Bank were very active on Twitter um, from a social perspective, but not so much Instagram and Facebook, just because of compliance and regulatory reasons. Mm. Um, and so I think when I started my bake of those channels, Facebook and Instagram were definitely more active compared to Twitter. Um, so I'd say it was a very different type of marketing. I thought the skills would help me. I thought, okay, I've got the comms, I've got the marketing. I think relationship building really helped. Um, I think I took a lot of what I learned at Deutsche Bank was sort of dealing with internal stakeholders, dealing with people. Um, people are complicated. <laughs> um, so I think that that definitely, definitely helped um, with sort of building relationships with investors, building relationships with uh, bakers as clients, um, sort of as suppliers, and then of course customers. Um, so I think that skill set definitely helped on the marketing side, not so much, because again, social wasn't as present as it is now um, within banks. I think banks have had to do it now. They've had to get on Twitter. They've had to get on Facebook. They've had to get on even Instagram. Um, but I think back in 20, sort of 10 to 12, it wasn't as prominent. Okay. Now that's interesting. So going to the inception of my baker then, what um when was that eureka moment if there was one or was it uh, more sitting down and thinking about what you wanted to do next um yeah just talk me through that process that led to its creation yeah sure so it was definitely a eureka moment um nice. i um, sort of fell into the idea so i um sort of live in west sussex out of london i was organizing a baby shower for my sister and um really found it difficult to find some customized cakes for her baby shower 
um, there wasn't a Lola's Cupcakes or a Hummingbird um, in, in Crawley at the time, which is where sort of everyone ran to in London when they needed something personalised. Um, so I spent a lot of time on Yale.com, um, looking at Instagram hashtags, Google, um, looked, searching through pages to try and find bakers to bake to my specification. And I found a baker just five minutes down the road to where my parents live, who was a home baker, fully registered, had no idea that these types of businesses existed and you actually could start a business from home. And I ended up ordering from her and everything was fantastic. Um, we got some really good feedback from sort of the guests. And it was after that that I thought, hold on a second, you've got Just Eat, which had just, it was quite new and Deliveroo, which was quite new as well at the time you've got platforms of food and sort of this whole sharing economy has started. Why hasn't anybody done something for baked goods? It's like, this is like, that was the eureka moment. This is great. I can, there's I a can niche. There's a niche. And yes, it is a smaller market. It's not, food tech is huge. And sort of a lot of investors actually question me on this, but um, the cake market is, is still very big. I mean, it's worth 500 million in the UK alone, which is huge. Oh. And that's just on cakes. That's not even putting into consideration sort of biscuits and, and sort of other baked goods. Um, so once I had that sort of idea, I started doing a lot of market research into the concept. Um, I started an Instagram page, um, which was just sort of scouting and on board and sort of following bakers. Again, didn't think that it would turn into the business it did. Just started following bakers, speaking to bakers, um, mm. to see sort of their nuances, their issues. And um, I got a lot of good feedback from home bakers saying, look, we love what we do, but it's, we really struggle to find customers. We hate dealing with customers. Um, you know, when we spend sort of 50% of our time in the kitchen and 50% of time with customers, we, we, it, we can't juggle both. Um, and that's when I started sort of looking into the idea. And I um, applied to join a food tech accelerator program um, with Just Eat. So Just Eat had a tech accelerator program where they were picking five startups and they were giving 20,000 to each startup to sort of help them um, build their MVP and sort of kickstart their business. Um, and I remember at the time I had a big sort of disagreement with my dad because he said to me, you absolutely cannot leave your job in the city. Like, have you gone mental? Are you nuts? Like you can't leave sort of a secure job and, and sort of do this. And I remember saying to him, look, the compromise is if I get onto this accelerator program and I get the money from Just Eat, I, I will take a sabbatical. I will leave, I will leave um, the bank to pursue this. And um, I got into it. So I applied, um, I got invited to pitch. So I had to pitch my idea. I put together a small, small deck. I went through sort of, it was like a, it was like a grad assessment center. That's how I'd best describe it. You know, when you go okay. through the yeah. rounds um, and I got accepted, accepted onto it, which was fantastic. And it was at that time where I thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit and I'm going to go full force um, and, and build the business. And that's how, that's how my baker was born. Amazing. Um, so going back to the, the, the endorsement, why did Just Eat, do that what do they what's the benefit to them yeah sure so they i guess it, their hope was um invest in five startups um, within the food tech space um one or two all of them in hope but one or two will make it um as in will become profitable will grow and then i guess their hope was to acquire one of the startups within sort of five to ten years it was a, a very like long-term strategy um, by them, but that's why they, um, that's why they started the accelerator. And it was also to, um, it was also su to support entrepreneurs. There was a lot of um, food tech businesses starting and there wasn't really a player in the space sort of mentoring and guiding them. You had sort of, um, 
you had other tech accelerators, but nobody was focusing on food. And Just Eat were one of the very first to sort of pioneer that. Um, and it went on for three years. So they did three cohorts, which was fantastic. It was really oh. successful. Great. Um, and, and also the thing you said about um, when you did the research with, with the bakers and they were saying it's, it's really hard to do that 50-50 split of finding customers and uh, actually doing the baking. Were, were a lot of those bakers doing it on top of their day job as well? Because really I can imagine, yeah, yeah baking yeah, yeah. and then dealing with customers, like having got home from a long day at work is quite intense. Yeah, no, really good questions. So I guess I'd split them into, I'd split them into, split them into two. I'd say there was sort of 50% of them who were hobby bakers, fantastic at what they do, hadn't, didn't really have any skills or training, um, were doing it along sort of a full-time job and just baking on weekends, um, but fully certified. And then you had 50% who were really serious pastry chefs who had um, completed diplomas and sort of qualifications at sort of some of the UK's best culinary schools. And then they'd um, sort of gone full-time at this. And a lot of those bakers took this really seriously, worked on commercial kitchens, so actually built up a brand for themselves. They actually stopped working from home and they were renting kitchens. And of course, when you start renting kitchens, your, your costs sort of really shoot up. So they're the ones that needed more orders to sort of pay off their rents and sort of, yeah. so they, they really needed our support. So yeah, I'd split them into two, two types. Okay. Um, so going back to the start then what what were the i'm sure there's been a lot of challenges but what were the ones that stick out to you most obviously going about finding that investment it from the way you described it it sounded quite seamless but i'm sure it wasn't as easy as that but what other things did you find difficult so i definitely say not having technical knowledge um was really tough um, I think now sort of Mark might disagree with me because, you know, it's not, I don't think you have to be technical to run a business, but it does save you a lot of money and it saves you a lot of time and, and mistakes. I think when I first started, I, when I received my investment from Jensen, sort of second investors, which we can talk about in, in more detail later, I, they gave me 150,000 and I spent a lot of that money building the platform. I think around... 40,000 were spent on building the platform. And now I look back, I don't think we needed to spend 40,000. If, if I had known sort of my way around um, technology and sort of different platforms, because a lot of off the, off the shelf plugins that you can buy, which actually save you money from building things from the ground up. And had I have had that knowledge, I wouldn't have made those mistakes. So not being technical for sure. Um, and then, yeah, just to sort of echo what you've said with gaining investment, it's Just Eat was fun. And I think I was very lucky to get onto the Accelerator program. It, I sort of stumbled upon it. Um, getting my second round sort of a real funding was really tough. Um, okay. I had to knock on a lot of doors and get a lot of rejections. And you really have to have thick skin um, before, sort of, before sort of getting even close to raising, raising money. Yeah. Yeah. So just quickly, because you mentioned the technical knowledge, um, was that technical around technology specifically? Because um, I know you, you've, you were focusing on the, um, the platform or, or was it technical knowledge about the, I don't know, the baking itself? 
It's a good question. Sorry, so let me clarify. So that's technical knowledge about the platform itself. Right. And um, so actually building the website, where to build it, what sort of product, what sort of off the shelf plugins do you need? Because we ended up um, custom building a lot of um, a lot of the products that we still have today, like the Baker dashboard, for example. And um, again, as I mentioned, a lot of that money could have been saved, I think, um, by going about it sort of a cheaper way. Had I yeah. had the technical acumen, yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one though, isn't it? Because if, how is your time best spent? Because obviously, even if you had a bit of understanding of tech, I don't know, maybe it's better to just pay someone to get it right first time and you focus on building the other elements of the business. But yeah. if if you could have saved 10, 15, 20 grand, then maybe it would have yeah. been worth having yeah. the knowledge. No, that's um, a good point. But I think and that's something else, when we when I was pitching to investors, um, one of their sort of first in five questions um, was always, so are you technical? It was uh, always okay. a question. Um, it's just a big, it became a buzzword. I don't even think, I think it was sort of a follow-on effect. I think one fund would say, oh, having a technical co-founder is, we're not going to accept, we're not going to invest in anyone unless they have a technical co-founder on their team with any tech company. Um, and I think it just followed on as this, like, as this sort of expectation that having a technical co-founder makes you more desirable and makes you, um, makes you get funding faster. So I think that was another another tough thing that we yeah I can imagine from an investor's perspective that that, that would appeal um, to be fair um yeah and then the, the second thing that you, you were talking about knocking on a lot of doors and, and getting a lot of rejections can you just go into a bit more detail on that like how did you find potential investors that, that you thought might be interested and and yeah yeah, sure. Gosh, so many different methods. I'll start with the sort of normal ones and I'll get on to the creatives. The normal methods are very much Googling um, different funds. So um, we, I was eligible for SEIS, um, SEIS relief, which means um, you as an angel investor can invest. And if my company goes bust, you can get um, close to 80% of your money back. Um, and that's, that's something that was fantastic for, for entrepreneurs because it meant that it was a little bit easier to get your first round of funding. So I, um, use a lot of different words on Google. So I would type in like SEIS investment funds, um, SEIS investment, um, funds, London. So using all these different keywords and I would literally create spreadsheets and spreadsheets of, um, the name of the fund, the contact, the number, the address. And um, I used a few different ways to sort of contact these investors. One would be cold calling, which was really tough because you just get, people wouldn't pick up, people would hang up, people would say, yes, of course, our partial um, details on would never come back to you. So then sort of the creative ways that I started doing to approach investors, but I had a pitch deck. So I would send the, I would post the pitch deck out with um, some biscuits. Um, with sort of the fund's logo on the biscuits or um, some, oh, of the nice, really nice. Big, some of the some of the bigger funds I'd actually send a cake and actually say um, I put their logo on the cake just to sort of show because you know you've got to try you've got to think outside the box to be seen like they're receiving so many pictures daily you've got to stand out somehow and that worked that yeah really, I love that. that that would work on me I'd be investing straight away. Yeah, we even had some fun sort of taking pictures and putting on their Insta stories and just tagging us, um, which is quite nice. Um, other things I did was just networking. Um, I used to really enjoy networking, but I think it just got really tiresome because you'd spend, I'd spend sort of the day 
working on my baker and then 7 p.m after 7 p.m i'd spend like three hours going to tech events going to investment events going to pitch events to actually see how other entrepreneurs are further along the process how they pitch um actually watching them to get some tips and then networking with actually networking with founders that really helped networking with founders who were like more advanced in their fundraising process and getting their details and then emailing them and saying look you, you've been through the process and um, you've done a great job and um, would love some advice, would love some intros to some investors. And that was worked really well as well. Cause I think founders who have been there really get it and they really want to help. Um, and sort of now, whenever I receive emails from, uh, you know, startup founders, um, I will always make a point to respond and help because it can be really lonely and stressful. And, um, it's, it's, I do think it's a nice environment. I, I think being an entrepreneur, being a founder, if it's, it's, it's not sort of, it's not cutthroat. People want to help. Yeah, yeah. It's great to hear that, that there is that supportive network. And I guess people that have been there and done it appreciate how much hard work and effort has gone into it. So they want to, um, to help you succeed as well. Um, and, and like you were saying about the baking all day and then going to these networking events, that's just a demonstration of the dedication that you had and, and the sort of thing these people have to do to, uh, to make it succeed. All right. Yeah, yeah, good. Sorry. Um, but yeah, just going back to the SEIS thing, what made you eligible or what makes a company eligible for that? Yeah, so you have to be a first time founder. You have to obviously have not applied for SEIS relief in the past. And you have to be a UK company, which we were, and you have, you can't be, um, you have to be within five years of your founding date. So we, we ticked all those boxes, um, which meant we could apply. Cause I did have a friend actually who had had her business for five years cause she sort of started it on the side and then, um, really started to grow it sort of four years in and then decided she wanted to apply for SEO and she couldn't. Um, she wasn't eligible, but she was, it was a shame for her, but, um, it's really important actually to know your, know the criteria before, before you apply, but applying in itself, it's, it's not that tough, but it's quite a long process. You've got to fill out a long form, send that off, wait for, wait for the HMRC to come back to you and approve it. And only then can you go, um, to investors? Cause a lot of investors that I'd speak to would say, are you approved yet? And if you right. said no, they'd say, well, look, come back when you have the approval. Um, and the trick there is to not apply in April because April is the busiest time. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a trick is to sort of get your applications in sort of September to September to December. Okay, cool. That's a, a helpful little tip. Um, yeah. So what was it then in the end that, um, that sort of drove Jensen to, to invest that 150 K in you? Was that the massive cake that you baked them? So I think one part of it was definitely that, that we were, we were really enthusiastic, hmm. super, super enthusiastic. And we'd done a lot of research into our decks, a lot of research into the industry. Um, another thing that we had done is we had traction. So um, when we started, um, when, when I started the business, I built a landing page, which was built on Wix. It cost me no more than 25 pounds to set up and I'd onboarded um sort of I think it was 12 bakers to start with just to try and prove the concept 
And I started taking orders through that website, starting taking, taking orders through Instagram. And when we had sort of our first handful of orders, I used those orders as case studies when I went to pitch and said, look, I know this, this has legs. Look at this data that I've collected. Look at these bakers. This is the feedback that I've got. And that was really much like the proof of concept part. Um, so it was almost going to them with, with proof of concept and data. I think that really helped. We weren't just going with an idea. We were saying, look, we've been on the Just Eat Accelerator program. That in itself spoke for itself. That was fantastic. Because Jensen sort of thought, okay, Just Eat are in. This yeah. must be something. Um, that, that honestly helped a lot. Um, but then in addition to that, it was, yeah, putting together a good pitch deck. We actually, um, we put together sort of the content, but we got a designer to sort of spruce it up which I think was key, um, best sort of 200 pound that we spent paying yeah. her to, to do that because it just looked really professional. And I think that again, helped, um, helped a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, okay, so what point then did you start to think about an exit um, and, and why? Wow. So to be completely honest with you, last year um, was a really, really testing time for me. Um, I was sort of a sole founder for the majority of 2019. Um, cash runway was really, really tight and I needed to raise a second round of funding. And at that point I was going for a bigger VC round. So it would have been a minimum of one mil that I needed to raise um, to scale the platform across the whole of the UK. And um, I started the conversations. Um, I spoke again, spoke to a lot of um, a lot of funds, and um, they really liked the idea and they loved the concept. But they just said to me, "Your numbers aren't strong enough. Um, your numbers need to be a little bit higher. Come back to us when you're doing fifty thousand a month." And we were sort of almost there, but not. Um, and a lot of but what, yeah, lot what of, were you on at that point? If you don't, we were, on, we were sort of fluctuating between sort of 20 um, to 35. Sort of a really good month last year was like 35k. Yeah. Some investors said to us that they had already invested in um, similar businesses, so they had like conflicts of interest, um, which was true because I'd always go and check their portfolios um, yeah. so, so they couldn't invest in us. Um, and others just didn't have the money. So with, with VC funds, they obviously collect, um, they have money in their pot um, sort of at different sort of intervals throughout the year. So if they don't have money in their pot, they will still speak to you, but they'll sort of keep you on the back burners and say, look, come back in three months when we have money in our fund. And that, a lot of the time, it was VC saying that. Yeah. It didn't help me because I was completely out of cash runway. I had a team of four who I was paying. I, I sacrificed a salary for two years. I didn't take a salary. Wow. Um, 2019 was when I just couldn't pay myself anything at all. Um, I had to put my own money into the business. So I was putting loans into the business just to keep it afloat. Um, I had to cut down costs a lot. Um, but in terms of sort of exiting, when I struggled to raise, um, I think in August last year, I came to a point where I just thought, okay, raising money is going to be really difficult. It's summer now and sort of everyone's on holiday and it's not going to pick up again. It was at that point where mentally um, I was so drained. It was, I think I got, I remember saying, my husband saying to me, um, do you really want to continue to do this? Like it, it was, it was that testing. It was really tough. Surprised I didn't have a breakdown now looking back. I think I did, a mini one. Um, so that, so August time, I then said to myself, look, I'm going to focus on um, 
cutting costs, getting rid of a few employees, um, and just trying to make the business profitable. Just trying to focus on actually making it profitable, cutting down my costs, and, and seeing, seeing where that got me. And then it was the, at the end of the year that I decided um, that I wanted to exit. And I thought to myself, I, I, I know this is, this is something amazing and mm-hmm. I've built something great. And I think the, the worrying thing for me was I didn't want to let go. No. I think in my mind, I knew that I was like mentally and physically drained, but I just didn't want to let go. And I kept setting myself timelines. I kept saying, okay, I will wait until this month and then I'll make a decision. I'll wait until mm-hmm. this month. And it just kept extending. Um, and then in sort of January, that's when I sort of started the sale process. And I had a few, had a few people interested, which was great. Um, so we were in discussions, very early discussions. And I had um, sort of a, a, a guy from, um, a guy from Italy who had a business before in health tech. So a bit of a weird shift, but he was very much interested in buying the business. And we got through a lot of due diligence with him. And then the lovely COVID happened. Mm. Um, so COVID happened and he was based in Italy, but he'd come here every week and he, they were also in quarantine. And he um, then of course said, look, I can't, I don't feel comfortable buying this now. Um, give me six months. Um, let's see where the economy goes. Still really interested. Let's keep in touch. Um, but I'm going to pull out the sale process now, which was after going through sort of two months of back and forth, getting investors involved, going through due diligence, I was just done. Honestly, Dan, I just thought to myself, I just want to shut this down now. I can't, I can't, I don't have the, the, the energy to go through with this again. And um, I'll, let, I'll let Mark actually go on and tell, tell his version of the story because I'm sure it's, a, it's much better because I was telling you a bit of it last night. But that's when Mel and Mark um, emailed me and I'm actually going to let Mark and speak yeah. to you about how they got how they got in touch. Yeah. Step back in, Mark. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, Danny, I think I think you've got kind of uh, audio and video gold there because I think Noreen's been, you know, very transparent about about what she's been through. And and I should just say, and it's it, it, it's not false flattering. It's 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 the genuine truth. I couldn't have got the business to where Noreen got it to from scratch. It's just not my, it's not my skill set. That founder's mentality, that trying stuff, proof of concept and stuff, but you know, my background has always been with more established businesses, which is why I really do back myself to take it on from here with, with, a, with the, 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 the fortune of having my wife, Mel, who brings a very different skill set, and we've got a wonderful intern as well. Um, and with all that around me, I back myself to, to, to take this business on. But, but genuinely, I think what Noreen did is vi- nothing short of visionary. And I think, yeah. um, you know, you've heard sort of the, 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 the challenges and hurdles that she faced along the way, which were really genuine and really tough. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so the background, we first knew about my baker because my wife is a baker and my mm-hmm. wife was approached by Noreen. Yeah, Maureen at this stage has no clue about me or who I am. She only knows Mel, yeah. and uh, Mel says, "Oh, you know, there's this there's this business." Mel had just started a baking business herself, but like as a home baker, right? Which we decided, you know, it was kind of she was passionate about. She wanted to do that rather than have a salary job. So, uh, you know, go for it. And then Mel said, "Oh, well, there's this business that's approached me, my baker, which can get me orders." And I said, oh, yeah, but they'll take a big slug of commission. It's rubbish. Don't do it. (laughs) And then then Mel said, no, really, it's really good. And, you know, founder's really nice and so on. So Mel persuaded me to do it. And and 
that decision, so forget about us buying my bakery and it's like that decision was a great decision by Mel. And I was completely sold on the concept from being a cynic to being, because basically what it meant is that Mel was getting a volume of orders through my baker that she could never have dreamt of getting yeah. off her own steam. And that's really useful context now, because now when I'm approaching a baker to get them onto the platform, as we try and expand to a national, truly national platform, yeah. um, I can say all that, you know, so I've got genuine baker empathy. I know but if a baker says, Oh, you know, that bloody delivery, that bloody job you gave me is with a two hour round trip delivery. You know, it's like, yeah, I know because me, I've done that for Mel, you know, so there is that yeah. genuine, that genuine, sorry for the language, by the way, there's that genuine, uh, <laughs> genuine empathy there that we can have. So, so yeah. Um, well, it goes back to that. Sorry to interrupt, Mark, but it goes back to the, the point Nori made earlier about the baker having to do their own business development, deal with customers on top of uh, doing the actual baking. I mean, yeah, a slice is taken, but for what you get for that slice, I imagine it's a massive benefit and you get to focus on what you enjoy, which is the baking. That's it, that's it. I mean, that, that's exactly the selling point. You've nailed it, Danny. It's that, that, you know, the, the, the larger share of the total price in exchange for just being able to bake a cake and deliver it is, is what we're all about. And that really suits some people. And what you find is it suits some people on a certain stage in their journey. And then some stay with us for ages. Some stay with us for a few years. We've got bakers who, who unfortunately from our perspective has left, but what's happened with them is they've developed their own brand to the point where they don't need us anymore or feel they'd rather focus on their own brand. And that's, that's cool as well. You know, that's absolutely fine. Um, that, that's just kind of part of the journey they go through. We have some bakers who are kind of, they'll be quite sort of reasonably so, but they'll be, they'll, their, their position will be, well, if I'm busy selling my cakes, I won't take any orders on. But if I have a quiet patch, I'll, I'll take my baker orders on then because that, that will help, help me like flatten out my, uh, my revenue basically. So, so we have, um, we have all sorts of things like that, but, um, but yeah, going back to sort of, the journey from just Mel being a baker on the platform to actually we could buy this. Um, you know, Noreen was sending out emails and, and, and explaining to the bakers that she was, you know, thinking about maybe shutting it down. I had decided I didn't want to be in the city anymore and I just needed to do, needed a change. We planned actually to spend 2020 traveling the world and then COVID happened. Um, and, and, and so all of these things had to align themselves all at once in, in such a such a weird sort of almost cosmic cosmic aligning of the stars. You know, me, yeah. me, me turning my back on my career, Noreen deciding she wants to sell, COVID scuppering our travel the world plans, um, the desire, the long held desire I'd had to be an entrepreneur rather than an accountant. All yeah. of things kind of combined. And um, I think this, this, the story that Noreen was alluding to we really had to talk her into talking to us because she just, Noreen had made peace with closing the business after everything she'd been through, you know, the, 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 the previous buyer for pulling out. I think Noreen was just done. And uh, we emailed her and said, look, you know, we'd love to, we, we'd love to, um, we'd love to buy it. We're really interested in the business and we think we can make it work. And, you know, with my background, I'm used to running things on a shoestring. So I think we think we could do it without investment and that's what, and that's what we're doing. Um, but I think Nori, you took a bit of persuading, didn't you? 
And I, I'd be interested to know what finally made you speak to us because we, we sent a few emails saying, please don't yeah. close it. We'll pay, we had to say, we'll pay you money. <laughs> gotcha. I remember, um, so I remember sending out the email to our bakers saying, because they knew about the potential buyers and I, given I really thought it would sell back in, back in Feb, um, again, when that didn't happen, I, I sent an email out to them being really honest and saying, look, guys, um, I know I mentioned that I was sort of in a sell process that has fallen through now um, due to COVID. Um, just wanted to give you a sort of the heads up that in the next month, um, I, I may be closing the business down. And the reason I had to let them know is a lot of bakers actually depended on our platform for income. So yeah. a lot of them use it as a really sustainable means of getting income every month. So some of them, again, Mark will echo this, they're making over a grand a month. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so again, for them, this was really bad news that it was shutting down. Um, but I got some really nice emails back saying, um, we're shocked it's closing. It's such a great business. Um, are you okay, Noreen? I had a lot of bakers mm -hmm. calling me. And I had Mel respond to me um, saying that she was really sad to hear that it was, it might be closing. And um, she said, you know, my husband is um, a business turnaround specialist and look, let me know if you sort of want to speak to him. Um, um, we'd love to have a chat um, if, if there is, if it is still up for sale. Yeah, I think that's what Mel said. And I, and I read the email and honestly, any other person I'm sure would have been jumping for joy at this point because it's like yay like it's it's another sale opportunity I did not feel happy about it I just thought yeah. the only thing that was going through my mind was anxiety and oh gosh I can't imagine going through another sale process and it failing again like that's the only thing that was in my mind and I just thought yeah. to myself I need to send back an email that's just going to make Mel go away and like not email <laughs> again. Um, and I didn't even tell my husband at that point because I thought he, I knew my husband would try and convince me to actually pursue it and speak to Mark and Mel. So I responded to Mel saying, look, thank you so much. Um, really, really appreciate your kind words. Um, but it, look, I've, I actually remember the exact words I used was I'm really mentally, I've compartmentalized myself with shutting this down. I'm okay. And um, thanks, but no thanks. And um, I didn't think she'd reply, but then I had a response from Mark saying, um, hi Noreen, sorry to sort of, um, sorry for the cold email, but we're a big fan. He sent me a really nice email actually. It was a very convincing email saying, um, look, um, it's just, we were really big fans and it just would be such a shame if this did close down. Can we just have one call? Um, and at that point, um, I mentioned it to my husband, Moss, and, and he, I remember him saying to me, what's wrong with you? Like, you're not doing anything else right now. Just have the call. Like, you don't know what could come of this. It could be fantastic. And he convinced me. I think it was, Mark, it was a mixture of Mark's email, very polite and persuasive. Um, and, and my husband just saying, what's wrong with you? Have a call. It'll be 15 minutes. And if you don't want to do it, then you don't have to go ahead. And that's what sort of what sort of, a, a, I, that's when I decided to have the call with them. And I think we spoke the next day. It was April the 17th we spoke, wasn't it? I can remember the day. That's my birthday on the 17th. So I think it might have been a couple It might have been after, after, or maybe after, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I just, I got on a call with Mark and Mel, and honestly, it just felt right. It really yeah. did. They mm. were so lovely. They were quite calming. Like, it didn't feel stressful at all. Like, it felt like they would do all the work, and I just yeah. have to sort of go through the ride. The dream. And they were willing to give me cash. So I just, which, but I think for me, it was just sort of, you know, 
I'm sure Danny, you know this. Like I'm sure when you know that when you have sort of a, such big expectations of, yay, my company's going to sell, and for it to come crashing down, it's just, it's it's like losing, um, it's like losing a job. That's how it yeah. felt. It was like being fired. Mm. Um, but no, they but even more. worse, surely, just because oh, you, where it's all, yeah, all and your. You take it, and you take it personally because it's your baby. Yeah. Um, but they, they were very, very sweet throughout the whole process, made it very easy for me, actually. And I think what also gave me a little bit of comfort was knowing what Mark's background was. Yeah. They were very professional, and I can say this now, very professional. Um, not to say the other buyers weren't, like what the, the Italian guy was, but I had some other people interested who were just very interesting, like just not, not as, not as their due diligence wasn't as sort of thorough as Mark's. And, yeah. Mark knew exactly what he was doing. Um, so yeah, and then and then sort of we went through, I think a month and a half, Mark, right? Of Yeah, well, you're, I think your timescales are right. So it was mid-April yeah. um, from the very first, was the very first call, a couple of days to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And then, yeah, completion was 23rd of June, wasn't it? So it was actually two, it was actually two months, give or two take. Two months, yeah. Um, yeah, but um, I, I'd echo what you said, Noreen. It was, it was a... You know, I've done several transactions for other people, buying and selling businesses. I've never, I've never, I've never bought one for myself until a month ago. And um, you know, we we were really, I suppose, when we think about how could we persuade Noreen, you know, we we were like, we really want this business. How can we persuade Noreen? And we said, well, we're not going to get into a bidding war. We just can't, you know. And actually, it was better to be honest about that. And I think that's, I think from day one, we said that to Norwegian, we'll pay you, we'll pay you something. If there's a bidding war, if someone's willing to pay you a huge, you know, X amount of money, please sell it to them, not us, because we, we can't do that. And, um, you know, Noreen was incredibly professional. She had answers to all the questions we asked, whether they were within her comfort zone and her natural skill set, or she got them from other people. And it just got more and more convincing. Um, as we went along and we were we were really excited but yeah I think from our point of view how we differentiated ourselves was firstly Mel's a baker so Mel knows how the business works and together we think we can make a great team um, Noreen asked us after our first offer which was rejected um, to make an improved offer which involved having her retaining a stake in the business and staying on in the business and actually that wasn't a difficult ask at all. That was like, oh, fantastic, because Noreen's great. So if we can keep tapping into Noreen's expertise and have her as a minority shareholder and a consultant, it became it became even more compelling. And um, yeah, we all you know having having dealt with kind of you know the kind of people you allude to, Noreen, who sort of potentially come in and promise big to get your attention and then don't deliver. I was always that was one thing in my philosophy. I was always really determined. It's like. I'm not going to overpromise to Noreen, but everything we do say we'll do, we'll do. And that's why when I was having that real conversation, that first conversation, I was like, oh, please do engage us because this, this is not a frivolous inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't doing my job in the city anymore. I was, you know, the things that aligned, as I said earlier, I was looking for a fresh challenge. I was able to pay Noreen something for the business. Um, yeah. It became available for sale. Mel as a baker, me as a business person. It all just it all just made sense, but um, uh, you know, luck really. Luck, I think a combination of luck, who Noreen was, and who me and Mel are as people. I think all those three things, and timing, all those things yeah. have come together, yeah. and, then made, and then we made it work. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it just depicts, I think, how stressed and burnt out you must have been, Noreen, to to just 
completely almost dismiss the fact that someone was willing to come in and, and offer you money for yeah. what you built up. So. I think people underestimate, um, well, I'm sure, I don't know about now, but I think it's, people definitely underestimate the stress and the sort of, the non-glamorous part of being a founder and like founding mm. your own company. Because I remember a lot of my friends, family members, um, had so many comments went throughout running the business as if, oh, you don't really work. It's your own business. You don't need right. to really do anything. And it, yeah. it really grits at you because it's, I can say this now, it has definitely been the hardest thing I have done to date. Like working at Deutsche Bank seems like a walk in the park now. And I feel like I could do the job with my eyes closed. Um, but running my, starting my baker, running it was extremely testing um, mentally and physically. Yeah, the hardest thing I've ever done. And it's, it's just an emotional roller coaster, and it's. And I think there are there are definitely ups. I don't want to put anyone off who's like thinking yeah. of starting their own business, but there are a lot of downs, um, and it's so important to be really, really ready for that because um, I, I don't think I was. Um, the emotion's huge. Sorry, Norman, if you don't mind me yeah, jumping. No, it. It's just so it's the difference between. So if I was an employee, you know, for my baker. A customer rings and, they, and they, you spend five minutes talking about the cake they want and they go great i'll order that and if you're an employee that's fine and if they order they order and if they don't they don't but you know as the owner having been running it for a month and a half now like you go like five o'clock comes around have they not put that order in yet I was, on the phone, I was on the phone to them for 10 minutes you know and you get you take it and you have to learn not to of course because you yeah you never last but everything is personal every, and everything is magnified like an order someone ordered three cakes this morning you know i was jumping for joy like one order three cakes amazing you know and then you have a quiet day and, and i'm gonna i'm still at the start of the um the journey that noreen's been through and i'm gonna have to learn to moderate my emotions frankly because it is just you know, a quiet, a quiet day makes you miserable. A busy day makes you ecstatic, you know, yeah. and, there's, and there's always something to do. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, actually, Mark, you mentioned this and I was sort of chuckling to myself because it's exactly what I went through. It's, um, Danny, when you're sort of a small business, um, yeah. you wear many hats. You are yeah. head of accounts. You are head of customer services. You are um, head of complaints. Yes, that is a thing. Customers yeah. have asked to speak to head of complaints. Um, so when you pick up the phone call and you're like, hello, my baker, and they ask to speak to the owner and they've just been speaking to you in customer services. Yes. You have to put them on hold and then speak to them again because you've got to wear <laughs> in a different uh, voice. Yeah. <laughs> Mark telling me that, um, somebody spoke to Mark and then obviously who is the founder right now and then called back and said, hi, I'd like to speak to Mark from customer services. And Mark was just sort of like, excuse me, but Mark <laughs> so, yeah. You've got you've to wear every hat. You've got to put your ego to one side and take it as a compliment. You know, yeah. these are good at customer services. So, hey ho. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, well, look, what are your plans for the business then um, now, Mark? Once you've sort of got used to it, got your feet under the table, and and regulated your emotions. Yeah. No, look, it's a it's a it's a really good question. I mean, I think the first thing to say is. Um, and, and as I say, the, take my hat off to Noreen and, and, and founders everywhere. We haven't had to start a business from scratch. After a three month hiatus for COVID, we turned the website on and people started ordering. So mm. month one to get that validation that actually, you know, it's not a startup, it's a, it's a 
restart of an established business has been fantastic. Not, not you know, I'm not, I'm not off to sort of spend my retirement in the Caribbean next month or anything like that, but just, just steady, you know, good. Yeah. Um, we've, we've got, I suppose, two big plans really um, to build on the great work that Noreen's already done. One is the business is predominantly London and Birmingham now with kind of one to two bakers in several other big cities. And we want to transform that to be a truly national model. So that's the B2C stuff going to domestic customers. And uh, we think we can do that. Um, we think we can be quite persuasive with Baker recruitment. Um, we're 150 on the platform currently. We want to get that up to. So, so, so the shorthand we use is in, into Flora, but for cakes, probably not sure. Yeah. Not trying to use their branding or anything, but that's the analogy. You know, it's kind of, we, yeah. want, to be, we want to be what Interflora is to the flowers market. We want to be that for the cake market. The, the second big strand, which we'd sort of, in a way we've been perversely, we've been quite lucky not to have it on our plate at the moment, but it's, it's corporate orders. Um, and the reason I say we've been lucky not to have it is because it's been full-time job getting to grips with the domestic side. Uh, yeah. But in the fullness of time, you know, we'd like to target corporates. We're talking to one company at the moment about a kind of welcome their staff back to work order, which would be a really nice chunky order. Um, and I guess it's really what, what's really great about that is, you know, we're taking large corporates and we're getting orders for, you know, that could be 10 to 20 independent bakers all getting order off that. Many of whom work in their home kitchens, you know, so it's, it's quite an interesting mix of like international conglomerates. But the money is, you know, trickling down, I suppose, to use the sort of slightly cliched phrase to, to, to support the economy in general. So, so those would be the two big growth ambitions, more corporates, more corporate clients and genuinely national model. Um, the, other, the other thing we're doing, which has been an absolute godsend to us, is um, the, the Chancellor's new um, Kickstart job scheme, um, yeah. which I'm sure you know about Rishi Sunak announced and think applications are going to open this month, which means um, they'll pay someone, a young person on universal credit um, for 25 hours a week minimum wage. And, um, you know, plus the employers and I contribution. So basically, you know, free employees. Um, is this related to, because I read something about the grants um, for taking people on of a certain age on the apprentice things as well. Is that all part of the it. same thing? That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. It's the kickstart scheme. Um, and, um, you know, that's a game changer for us. And, and you know, we'd like to think, Eve's within earshot, so I hope you know what we're saying, but we'd like to think it's actually a game changer for the people will take on as well so although at the moment it is you know me and mel running the business from home what what i've done for for eve and will potentially do for another intern would be to create a job spec that's kind of like the first six months of a graduate scheme oh, amazing so, you know it's not it, we're, we're not that in terms of scale but because of my background i can give that to potential interns in terms of opportunity so you know you can do the customer services side you can do um, website, you know, product development and website development, um, dealing with complaints, marketing campaigns for new products, um, pitch decks for corporate clients, um, you know, understand the compliance side, understand the financial side. So a real kind of holistic experience. Um, because That's amazing. It's like a graduate training in startups. Effectively, yes. Effectively, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I can only do that because of my background. And financially, I can only do that because um, of the scheme that the Chancellor's announced. So again, you know, I, I actually don't think we would have done this but for COVID because I think I think Noreen, Noreen might have sold it to someone else. 
I think we'd probably be going around the world at the moment, which which I'm a which bit would have been very nice. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't <laughs> I don't think you know when I was listing all the things before that aligned. I think I think frankly, COVID is a, is is another one that just sort of has pushed us into into doing it. Um, so yeah, so those are the two things, and then I suppose as a distant third thing, you always think ten steps ahead, and you've got to watch yourself. But if we can make it work in the UK. You know, could this be a, a model that could be replicated internationally? But um, we're just not there yet. And you know, there's no. so, there's so much kind of to do on those two: a, keeping the business running as it is; b, national expansion; c, targeting corporates in the UK. That'll keep us more than occupied for the next two, three years, I would have thought. Um, yeah. And then we can think about international. And as I say, I'm delighted to say that Nori remains a minority shareholder. Um, works with us as a non-executive director and a consultant and um, you know her support throughout the due diligence the acquisition post-acquisition handover has just been phenomenal we couldn't we couldn't have done it without her help that's great um all right well just before we wrap up then um i guess if both of you could just give one piece of advice to people aspiring to start their own business or or at least run their own business i guess in in your instance mark Sure. So I go first. Yeah, go for it. Sure. I think um, I think my advice, and it, it applies to life in general as well as running your own business, is in as much as it's possible, do the stuff you're good at, and surround yourself with people who can do the stuff that you're not good at. Because particularly in a startup, there's this kind of I have to do everything. So so I'll give you a, a very concrete example. Bizarrely, as a chartered accountant of 17 years standing. I'm not going to do our bookkeeping and accounts because I just yeah. think I just think that's not the role of the founder. That's you know kind of we're a three people business at the moment. I need to be selling. I need to be developing concepts and products, pitching, uh, dealing with customers. I need to be front and center, and that is something I can I can outsource. Although my sort of training would lend me there, I, I wouldn't particularly enjoy it, and I think I'd just be kind of spending the time doing that. Going, there's something else I should be doing. So in as much as you can and it's it's really challenging in a startup environment because you haven't got much money and you're small but in as much as you can know the things you're amazing at get really good at them do as much of them as possible and try and get out of doing the other stuff which is kind of it's kind of the opposite of what a graduate scheme teaches you it's kind of like you know you will do all of these aspects and stuff like that but and that's probably good that's probably good for a graduate but when you're by the time you're 30 i would have said latest you, you kind of know what you're good at and what you're not and really try and get into a place where you can be doing what you're good at. That's it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I, I definitely agree with that approach. Like if you're spending, I don't, I don't know how easy it is for the books of your business, but if you're spending five hours a week doing some basic debits and credits, that is five hours a week of your time wasted. I would have thought, um, but yeah, no, so that, that's really interesting. Thanks for that, Mark. And uh, Noreen? I would probably, two things are sort of going through my mind here. So I think the first is... You can say both, yeah. <laughs> to, to people starting, wanting to start their own business, I'd say firstly, don't get lost in this whole raising money um, like phenomenon. Everyone thinks that raising money equals success. Um, in starting a business, the first thing you have to do is raise and you have to get investors on board because that's really important. Um, whilst it's great to have money to sort of spend and play around with, so you don't have to put your own money into the business. 
I think that it's more important to um, make your business sustainable and profitable before you even think about fundraising. Um, and now like sort of post COVID, um, the companies that are getting investment now are the ones that are profitable. Um, I don't think it's, we've seen a big shift. I think a couple of years ago, it would have been companies that had a really good idea and had good tech, but no profitability. If you look at companies like Deliveroo, for example, which, which got all the investment, but now it's not. Investors are thinking differently. And I think secondly, um, you can do a lot with very little money. I, I think that goes for, I don't think that's just, um, I'm not, I don't think I'm speaking just about my baker there. I think any business, um, you can sort of build a business um, and, and watch your spend. Um, so I think it's really important to be careful where you spend your money. Um, and to, cause I think that's one mistake that I, I did make. As soon as I raised, I was sort of chucking money at sort of Google ads with marketing, Facebook. And I think had I sort of stepped back and, and, and sort of adjusted my spend a little bit, um, it, it, in hindsight, it, it would have been better. So yeah, don't raise straight away and, and spend your uh, work, basically build your business on a budget is what I'd say. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. Thanks, Noreen. And then finally, I, I usually ask the three key attributes that have enabled you the success that you've had. But obviously, as there's two of you, it'd be good if we could get one from each of you and then a joint attribute that sort of enabled you to come to an agreement on selling the business to Mark. So, Noreen, if you want to go first with that. Sure. So sorry. An attribute. So it's just an attribute that's enabled you the success that you've had. Gosh. I think I'd say, I hope this counts as one. I think I'd say relationship building. Yeah, definitely. Counts as an attribute. I think that's definitely helped me sort of throughout the business and with Mark and Mel. Um, yeah. Okay. And, and you, Mark? Um, you know, I, I, I think kind of, you know, persistence, tenacity, that, that, that's really important. Um, you won't get anywhere without that, in, regardless of field, regardless of whether, regardless of whether you're self-employed or an employee. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have knocks. You're going to have personality clashes at times. Um, you know, you, you, you've got to stick things through. You've got to really stick with it. Um, equally you have to know when to quit you know so it's kind of <laughs> you can you can stick with things too long I think I think Noreen and I are both persisters actually um and I think you know it can go against you if you don't know when that moment is when it's actually right now that, that that's gone now but but persistence will stand you in good stead generally not giving up seeing the positives seeing the opportunities trying to maintain as positive a disposition as you as you can throughout it all seeing the bigger picture I think those are all things that um that work and you know what some some of it's luck as well yeah, yeah. I can't lie to you. luck and timing and circumstances it all plays a part great all right well look it's been amazing to uh, to have you both on and hear the my baker journey um really appreciate your time and uh, yeah i think there's a lot of really really interesting insights there so thanks thank you thanks yeah. danny really enjoyed it Danny thanks very much for thinking of us and um, yeah all the best with uh, with the podcast thanks
So that was Mark Sinjackley and Noreen Khan. I hope you enjoyed listening to uh, their respective career stories, but specifically the story around my baker. Um, the key themes that were discussed were um, discipline and determination in setting up your own business, um, thinking about SEIS relief and your plans for the business when you initially set up. Noreen mentioned that one of her friends had sort of set up on the side and then missed out on SEIS relief um, because she waited too long. Um, yes, there's a lot about dedication and uh, and fundraising in there as well. Um, in terms of advice from the guys, um, so Mark said to do what you're good at and surround yourself with people who can do things that you're not good at. Uh, Noreen said, look, as as a startup, as as a entrepreneur running your own business don't get stuck in fundraising um, and know that you can do a lot with without much money uh, in terms of key attributes that have enabled them the success that they've had to date um, for Noreen it was relationship building and for Mark it was um, persistence and tenacity as always don't forget to subscribe share and comment and you can find the success in finance blog as well as a list of confirmed future guests at successinfinance.co.uk thanks